The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Last Sunday morning, Dr. Rogers talked about joy and laughter and, and mentioned a comedian, a clean comedian that he enjoyed from years past, Red Skelton. I uh, imagine some of you have heard of him. I don't know if I've ever heard him speak, but I've, I thought about a contemporary comedian, Brian Regan, who, who I enjoy and also happens to be a clean comedian, at least every time that I have heard him speak. And one of the things that he talks about is how parents get to say things that people without kids never get to say. Things that are unexpected. You wouldn't think you'd have to form these sentences and say them to another person. So he tells about how he had to tell his son one time, Son, don't try to balance your fruit juice between your chest and the edge of the table. Who says that to another person? Or another time he, he, was, he was wrestling with his two young children. And he had his son wrapped in his arms and his daughter was wrapped around his legs. And then, and then all of a sudden his daughter was gone. And he looked up and she was in midair. And she comes crashing down on his head. Boom! And again, he had to say something he never thought he'd have to say to another person. Sweetie, you can't jump on my head like that. Sorry, Daddy. I didn't know that would hurt. Yeah, that hurts. Well, why do I, why do I start uh, this way this evening? The, the reason I do is because tonight we are be- going to begin a series on the book of Ephesians. And as you read through Ephesians, I think you won't be able to help but notice it is filled with unexpected sayings. And over and over and over again, you'll come across this unexpected grace of God in Christ that you'll find hard to believe. It's almost too good to be true. Incredible things you'll find in this book that Paul has written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you as we go through this study to read through the book of Ephesians on your own at home, along with us. You know, you will be preaching through the book verse by verse. And so just take that next section during the week and read through it. And as you do, ask yourselves two questions. One would be simply, what does the book teach about God? Because this is his story, his plan of salvation, his plan to redeem his people and grow his kingdom. So what do you learn about God. And then secondly, I would encourage you to ask, what are the unexpected sayings, the unexpected grace of God in Christ that I see in this book? So, and, and maybe you'd even want to journal those and just jot those down and think about how incredible they are. Or maybe you want to take time as a family and just do that maybe once a week. Read the few verses together and, and ask as a family, okay, what are some of the unexpected sayings that we find in this amazing book? That's what we're going to do this evening, very simply. As we begin this series, we're only going to look at the first two verses. An introduction, you might think, what can we learn from a greeting? But there's a lot that we could learn. I could probably preach three sermons on these first two verses, maybe even more. Uh, I've had to cut out probably a whole sermon just getting ready for this. So, but that's what we're going to do, very simply. What do we learn about God, and what are these unexpected sayings that we find in the first two verses of this book? So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. I believe it's page 976 in your pew Bibles. And I will read these first two verses for us as we do remember, this is the word of God. It's the truth, and it is a precious gift to us. May we receive it as such. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us this evening, that you would show us the depth of our sin, our need for you, but also, Lord, show us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and grant us the faith we need to believe and trust in you. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this evening, we're going to just take a look at this passage, one phrase at a time, one line at a time. So the first line we see is the opening line of this book, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And so we ask that question, what do we learn about God? And I would phrase it this way. The first thing we see here is that God sovereignly directs our lives for his glory. God sovereignly directs our lives for his glory. And so we start by looking at the Apostle Paul. And and what do we know about Paul? Well, the first time Paul shows up in the Bible, if you remember, is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And he's actually referred to as Saul. And if you remember that scene, what's happening is Stephen, maybe the first deacon in the church, the Bible describes him as being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council at the time. And Paul is a member of that council. And Stephen is standing before the council and he describes how the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the Messiah. And at that the Sanhedrin cut his testimony short. This is what it says, Acts seven fifty four. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They don't like what he's saying. And Paul is a part of that group. Well, Stephen responds to that. He has a vision of Christ in heaven and he says this in verse 56. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So basically what Stephen then says is, He's acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is God. And then this is how Paul, Saul, and the Sanhedrin respond to that. It says in verse 57, 58, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is... Saul, rejecting the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, and then stoning Stephen, would become the first martyr, one of the first martyrs in the church. And this sparks a persecution of the church that is spearheaded by none other than Paul. And Paul's not just content to keep this persecution in Jerusalem, he wants to spread it. So in chapter 8 we read, and Saul approved of his execution... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is Saul ravaging the church, causing excessive damage and destruction. You might think of the aftermath of a powerful tornado. And Paul continues this persecution. Chapter 9 says, but Saul, just listen to this description, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you can imagine the scene. You can imagine how Christians felt about Saul at the time. If you were a Christian, Paul was probably the person you feared the most. In his own words, he would later admit that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So if you were a Christian, Paul wanted you dead. He hated you. He devoted his life to opposing you. He wanted to stamp out Christianity. He wanted to put an end to Christianity. Now listen, you want to hear the unexpected grace in Christ? Ephesians 1.1, this Paul is now an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now don't miss the significance of that just because you've heard that over and over again. In fact, this is how Paul often opens his letters. So this is not a new phrase to most of you, but don't miss that. It's, it's a miracle of grace. Paul is now an apostle of Christ Jesus. It might help us to understand if we take a moment to think about what is an apostle. An apostle is an appointed messenger, one who is sent out. Now, in a simple way, we, we parents, or at least I as a parent, do this often. I, I send out messengers on my behalf. You might know my wife and I, we have six children, and, and so we, we'll come to church here, and when church is over, my kids will kind of scatter around and be talking to their friends, and my wife and I will be talking to people, and when it's time to go, what do I do? Do I, do I search throughout the church and round up all my kids and, and take them outside? No, I'm too lazy for that. So what I do is I appoint one of my children to be my messenger, right? So I might go to Elena, I'll say, Elena, now you go find your brothers and sisters and you tell them, Dad said it's time to go. Get out in the car, it's time to leave. And then what happens? My wife and I finish talking, we walk out to the car, and there they all are, waiting patiently in the car. (laughs) That's not how it works for you? No, that's not usually how it works. But much more. When Paul calls himself an apostle, this is not just in theory, this is reality. See, when Paul writes that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's saying he was specifically chosen, called by Christ himself, sent out by Christ to teach with the authority of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, I'm sending you out to represent me. In my place, in a sense, to take my message. These are going to be my words with my authority. Now just take note of this for a moment. This, is, this makes a big difference for us as we embark on this study of Ephesians. Because it means that this book, this letter, comes with the authority of Almighty God. It is true. It is good. It is right. It is eternal. These words are life-giving Listen to it. Come to these words with humility and submission and reverent attention and wonder and awe. This book is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's unlike any other book you will read, right? This is not Harry Potter or the Hunger Games. This is not a school textbook. It's not a how-to manual. It's not even your favorite devotional or a work produced by the church. This book is produced by God himself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. The authority behind this book is the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So when Paul 
speaks, Christ speaks. When we read these words from Paul, it is God speaking to us. So when you come to hear a pastor preach from the word of God, you come to hear God himself speaking. And this is important. Because as we work our way through this book, we might be tempted to respond like my children often do when I send one of my messengers, right? They see their sibling come, they hear the words, and they think, you're not dad. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you. And we're tempted to bring that attitude to the word of God. Oh, this is just another book, 2,000 years old. It's outdated, doesn't speak to our culture today. I can't be expected to live like that. Those things can't possibly be true that are said there. We need to remember this book is the word of God. God inspired Paul to write it, and Paul wrote God's words. So revere it, treasure it, obey it, believe it. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He speaks the words of Christ for us. But now back to our our main point here. As we think about Paul being an apostle of Christ Jesus, the unexpected grace of Christ, we have to ask, how in the world did this happen? Right? Did you hear our description of Paul, of Saul in Acts? How in the world did this happen? How did Saul, who led the attack on the church, become Paul, an apostle who led the church? It happened because Almighty God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, this almighty God was sovereignly directing Paul's life for his own glory. It happened, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. It was amazing. We see how it happened in Acts chapter 9. You might want to read through that on your own sometime this week. But Acts 9 tells the story of how Paul was on his murderous mission. He was aiming to rid the world of Christians and Christianity. Remember, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus or any of his followers. And it was then that God sovereignly and mercifully intervened in his life. Remember that on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. He stopped him in his tracks. And he spoke to him and he called him and he transformed him. And he said, basically, God is going to take this man and use him not to destroy his church, but to build it up. Amazing. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The murderer now becomes God's messenger. This is unexpected grace in Christ. God was sovereignly directing his life for his glory, even though Paul was his enemy. See, Paul had not volunteered for this ministry. It's not something that he deserved. It wasn't something he planned. It wasn't even something that the church had appointed him to. If it was up to Paul or the church, this never would have happened. No, his apostleship derived from the will of God and from the call, the choice, the commission of Jesus Christ. See, based on Paul's record, he had no right to be used by God for his glory or to speak for him. But Paul was not an apostle because of his record. He was an apostle because of Christ's redemption and because of the will of God. Jesus had mercifully intervened in his life. He had corrected him. He had claimed him. He had commissioned him. God sovereignly directed his life for his glory. And this is good news for us. 
Because God does the same in our lives today. He sovereignly directs our lives, every circumstance, every moment, for his glory. We can rest assured, we can trust in him. Now this might be easy for us to believe when things are going well for us. But what about in times of suffering? Or what about in circumstances that we don't like? What about when our house doesn't sell as fast as we'd like it to? What about when a church has to close its doors? What about when you haven't had a job for a year and you you don't see when you'll ever get a job again? What about when your children or your grandchildren are rebelling against the faith that you've modeled for them and taught to them all of your life? What about when you have your own personal struggles with sin over and over and over again and you can't seem to break free from it? What if you're a couple struggling with infertility or you have a loved one who's been diagnosed with an incurable disease that will slowly but surely eat away at their body until they die? Or what about when you're being thrown into prison because of your faith or like Stephen, you're being stoned to death? What about in those moments? Is God still sovereignly directing our lives for his glory, even in suffering, even in death? The Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is always working his will to the praise of his glorious grace. We can also be comforted and encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul and other passages of Scripture in Romans. Remember, Paul's a messenger for Jesus Christ. These are the words of God to his people. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For this light, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing that can separate us from his love or from his will. In 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul will say, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So whatever you're facing tonight, you can know that a loving, merciful, compassionate God reigns over it all. And will one day turn it not only to his glory, but to your good. He is with you and he can be trusted. God sovereignly directs our lives for his glory. An unexpected grace in Christ. Let's turn to the second line of this book, Paul goes on to write, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So what do we learn about God? I phrase it this way. Second, 
God transforms sinners into saints. God transforms sinners into saints. You might ask, what's the unexpected grace here? And I say, it's represented in every phrase. That there could be saints. That they could come from Ephesus. That they could now be faithful in Christ Jesus. This is an incredible picture. An incredible testimony to the fact that God transforms sinners into saints. Let's start by asking, what are saints? You know, the world sees saints as a particularly good person. Somebody who's really holy, right? But that's not the way the word is used here in the Bible. It doesn't refer to some spiritual elite in the congregation. You know, like somebody who comes not just to Sunday morning church, but Sunday night church, and on Father's Day, no less. No. When Paul uses this term, when the Bible uses this term, it's referring to all believers, to all Christians. It's not a minority of exceptionally holy Christians. Instead, it refers to all God's people. The word saints means holy or set apart. They are holy because they are set apart to belong to God. The fact that all God's people are saints has nothing to do with their merit, with our merit. It's not based on how good we are or what we have done. They are called saints because God has chosen them to be part of his family. This is God's doing. Listen, if you are a Christian tonight... God calls you a saint. You are holy. You are set apart. God has set you apart for himself. The Bible says once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You belong to him. You are his treasured possession. That's unexpected grace in Christ. And it gets even more amazing as we go through this phrase because listen to where these saints came from. The saints who are in Ephesus. Now, If you know anything about Ephesus, you know it's not exactly fertile ground for growing Christians. It's not the place you would expect to start a church. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's in present-day Turkey. It had a very busy, a very large commercial port. Merchants flocked to it. It became the melting pot of nations and ethnic groups. The economy, the culture of this entire region was materialistic, sensual, idolatrous. Even today, I've read that there remains a sign carved in stone that local guides will say was used to direct direct sailors to a brothel. This was a pagan city. You might know that it was the headquarters of the cult of the goddess Artemis. They had built this magnificent temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, served by hundreds of priestesses who were really temple prostitutes. The worship of idols was a major part of the economy of Ephesus. So much so that when Paul went to Ephesus and was preaching Christ and saying that these idols were worthless, the people gathered around, the people who made their living, their livelihood from this, and they said, we can't have this go on. And so they incited a riot. And the people dragged Paul's companions to the theater. And you might remember, they started chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul's life was in danger. The people there wanted nothing to do with Paul. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus or any who would proclaim Christ. Yet, God was calling some from this very pagan city to set apart for himself, to be holy, to be his. So when we read to the saints who are in Ephesus, not only is this an unexpected phrase, but this is a miraculous phrase. This is much like Saul becoming Paul. 
God transforms sinners into saints. The good news again is this, that this is not just true for them, but this is true for us today. God has transformed you, a sinner, into a saint if you have trusted in Christ. Some of you might be here tonight and you might be weighed down by your sin. Filled with shame and guilt. Maybe it's some past sin that you've done. And you can't imagine how God could love you. How God could forgive you. Again, maybe it's a current struggle. A temptation you face over and over again. You can't imagine how God would call you his own, his beloved child. If that's you tonight, I want to tell you, look to the cross. See Jesus Dying there for you. Hear him crying out, it is finished. The most amazing display of love ever. Hear Paul saying to the elders in Ephesus when he tells them in Acts 20, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus gave his blood for you to make you his own. Listen to Jesus praying in John chapter 17 for you. When he says that the Father loves you just as he loves Jesus, his own beloved Son. You might be here tonight and you might not understand that. You might not be able to fathom this unexpected grace in Christ. But I pray that God would grant us the faith to believe it. That he has indeed turned us wretched sinners into his beloved saints, children, Sons and daughters, and he delights in us. We are his. Maybe you're here tonight, and you have the opposite problem. You might not say it, but you might think, well, if if God called me a saint, I could understand why. After all, you're a good person. You have no problem pointing out many other people that you are better than, even many so-called Christians. And you may do a lot of good in this world, but the problem is you're trusting in your own good works, thinking that it's what you do that makes you a saint, that earns God's favor. You think your good outweighs your bad, and so God certainly would allow you into heaven because of it. You also need to look to the cross and see Jesus dying there for you. What great sacrifice, what great cost that the holy, sinless, spotless, undefiled Son of God would have to die for you, shouts loud and clear, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You do not possess the righteousness you need to stand before a holy God. And so God mercifully made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Admit your sin, your need. Trust in Christ, not yourself. God transforms sinners into saints. This is the miraculous, gracious work of God. Listen to how Ephesians describes this transformation. And remember, these are the true words of God. Ephesians tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked in your sins. You followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were separated from Christ, 
alienated from God's family, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. You were once far off. You used to walk in the futility of your minds. You were darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in you due to the hardness of your heart. You were a sinner. But now, but now, what does Ephesians say? The glorious truth of the word of God. Now you are alive together with Christ, saved by grace. Raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are now God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now Christ himself is your peace. You have been reconciled to God through the cross. Through Christ, you now have access in one spirit to the Father. You are a fellow citizen with the saints, members of the household of God. You are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. You have a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And you have been sealed for the day of redemption. You have been forgiven by God in Christ and you are faithful in Christ Jesus. You are now a saint This is unexpected, but it is gloriously true, and we can say, thank you, Jesus. This is all incredible. But listen, these are not just encouraging sayings. This is not just some pep talk to boost your self-esteem. This is unexpected grace in Christ, which has become a reality. It is true because God transforms sinners into saints, and he does it over and over again. And he has done it for you tonight if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. That's what the phrase faithful in Christ Jesus refers to primarily. To trusting in Christ Jesus or exercising faith. See, a Christian, a saint, is one who has heard the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ and then has exercised faith in that gospel or believed that gospel. God can only transform sinners into saints by faith because the gospel is true. Because of the cross, because of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. See, sinners don't become saints unless the Son becomes sin for us. It's not possible for God to transform sinners into saints unless he first transfers the sin of the sinners onto his own beloved sinless Son. Do you hear that? It is not possible for God to transform sinners into saints unless he first transfers the sin of the sinners onto his own beloved sinless son. I ask you tonight as you sit here, are you a sinner before God or are you a saint? Listen, you may have walked in here tonight a sinner in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure, without hope except for his sovereign mercy. If you have, there is great news for you tonight. God offers you that mercy right now. Believe on Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and he will transform you into a saint, and you will walk out tonight alive in Christ, forgiven of all your sin, a recipient of the gift of eternal life. You did not expect that. You did not expect to come in here dead in your sins and walk out alive in Christ. 
But that's what God does. He mercifully transforms sinners into saints. And he can do it right now if you will turn to him. Paul Tripp, a pastor, a speaker, he, he tells a story of being in northern India and visiting this isolated village where people lived in dung-plastered huts. He said going into this village was literally a journey to the end of humanity. He says it was a village of the Dalits, the untouchables of the Indian caste system. But he said these Dalits were the lowest of the low. They were rat catchers. Their job in life was to catch rats. And then those rats became their diet. It's how they survived. These people were so neglected, so downtrodden, so uneducated that they have no culture of cleanliness or hygiene. He said the first thing that impresses you is how dirty these people are. Dirty clothes, dirty children, matted hair. That was the order of the day. And he writes these words. He says, I have to be honest. I was repulsed by these people. I didn't want to get near them. I didn't want to be touched by them. I was afraid of what diseases they may have that I could catch. I had seen enough and I just wanted to get out of there. As we were riding away from this village in a nice modern SUV, I sat looking out the window torn by conflicting thoughts. I was glad to be out of that village. I was repulsed by what I saw, but I had another thought. What those people look like to me is exactly what I look like to God. Sin has made me filthy dirty. Sin has destroyed in me any sense of spiritual hygiene. Sin leaves me isolated, ignorant, and dirty. But God didn't run out of our village. He wasn't relieved to be separate from us. Shockingly, he moved into our village. He came and lived with us in his love. He took our dirtiness and he gave us his life so we could become clean. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it unexpected to know that God sees every bit of dirtiness in us and he does not turn away in revulsion? No, he moves toward us. He wraps his arms around us. He changes us at the core of who we are as human beings. He doesn't separate from us because we are unclean. No, he touches us so that we could become clean. And he invites us to then humbly look into his mirror to see ourselves as we actually are and to seek the cleansing that only he can give us this is unexpected grace. It is offered to you tonight to know that you can stand before God dirty and unafraid because of the grace that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight we can celebrate the one who does not turn away, but the one who came to make us clean. We can celebrate this unexpected grace in Christ. God transforms sinners into saints. This is what God delights to do. He does it over and over again. He did it for Paul. He did it for the pagans in Ephesus. He has done it for me. He has done it for many of you here tonight. And I pray that he's doing it for one of you right now. And he will continue to do it until the day his son returns. What a gracious God we have. We come to the last phrase here in this introduction. 
And I'm just going to briefly touch on this in closing, and you can meditate it on your own with your family this week. But he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, we see that God gives us the grace we need and the peace we long for through his Son, Jesus Christ. Grace, God's great kindness towards those who are undeserving of his favor, but who have placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And then peace, what God has taken the initiative to do, to reconcile sinners to himself and to each other in his new community, the church. And we'll see that explained and explored throughout the book of Ephesians. And because we have grace From God, we have peace with God, and we can know the peace of God, and it leads to amazing things. We won't even touch on it, but it says here we now know God as our Father. That's incredible in and of itself. But one last thing for you to notice as you just look at this introduction these three lines, these two verses, every line mentions Jesus. This book is about Jesus. Paul's passion, Paul's mission in life was now not to stamp out Christianity, but now Paul's mission and passion in life were to know Christ and to make him known, to proclaim Christ. And you can understand why, can't you? Paul was overwhelmed at the magnitude of the unexpected grace in Christ that God had showered on him. He could hardly fathom That God had been so merciful to him when he was so clearly an enemy of Jesus Christ. But Paul is an incredible illustration of the mercy and grace and goodness of God. That God sovereignly directs our lives for his glory. That he transforms sinners into saints. That he gives us the grace we need and the peace we long for through his son. As we close, I want to encourage you to proclaim Christ as well. As you read through Ephesians, as you notice all these unexpected sayings, the unexpected grace in Christ, tell someone about it. Proclaim the greatness of your Savior. Tell others about his glory and his majesty and his truth and his love so they too might know and enjoy him to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, you are worthy of all praise and honor and adoration. Thank you for the grace you have shown us through your Son. Thank you that we have this privilege to worship you. We thank you that one day we will see our Savior face to face. All doubts will be gone. All struggles with sin will be gone. All suffering will be gone. And we will delight in you and worship you forever and ever and ever. Lord, until that day, fill us with your spirit that we might proclaim the glory of the one and only true Savior. May all here tonight bow before you and worship, adoration, praise, thanksgiving, and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.